Hey Shay, it's Kevin calling in from the Red Caps podcast. Really enjoyed your episode on behind the curtains or how the sausage is made. Um, listening to your process, it's very similar to mine. Uh, we use different software and, and different uh, devices, but overall the process is very, very similar. Um, I'm glad to hear that other folks actually script out their, their episodes too, because uh, when I first started doing the podcast and I was listening to people um, here in, a, in the Anchor community, uh, some people are able to do off their podcasts so well, yourself included, where it almost sounds like they're just riffing off the top of their head. Um, and I tried doing that and I was struggled mightily and had to start uh, scripting it out a little bit for certain episodes anyway. And uh, so it's nice to know that other people are doing that as well. Anyhow, love the episode. Keep up the great work. Talk again soon. Welcome back, Rescuers, and big thanks to Kevin at the top of the show there for some feedback on the podcasting podcast, which is a bit of a meta thing, isn't it? Anyway, really appreciate the comments. I'm not sure about the how the sausage is made. That always makes me chuckle, but it was really great to hear some feedback, and I'm glad that scripting the thing isn't freaking you out. When I first started Roleplay Rescue, I actually did get a bit of teasing and stick for doing scripting, but for me, it's just part of the process. I think if you're writing a TV show or if you're writing a radio play or if you're doing, I don't know, news reading, you don't do it off the cuff. And I just felt like it really helps me to get my ideas straight and put stuff out there in a way that's actually coherent. But of course, I absolutely take my hat off to anyone who's doing it off the cuff and has learned those skills. Anyway, today's episode is, well, 1D6 call-ins. And I've got a whole bunch of stuff which is really catching up on past episodes so towards the end of this episode there's a quite lengthy follow-up call-in from paul heptilemma uh talking about our ongoing discussion around about worlds it's a really interesting call-in it's well worth waiting for but it's long so it's going at the end before that i just thought i'd drop in the calls i've had from various people on recent episodes so we've got some stuff from carl rodriguez the gmnologist we've got kevin from the red caps and for the first time in living memory no calls from jason Connolly. Let's get into it. Hey, Shay, I just listened to your interview with Mark Greenberg, and I'm fascinated by Necropolis and when it will come out. The wheels are already spinning in my head. I thought it was very interesting what he said about kind of the old school style of play and how it's pretty tricky and there's some traps that are, well, you know, one player dies, that's probably going to happen. And, uh, Actually, I feel that Wizards has done that already with one of their adventure products, switching from you know fighting things to tricks and traps, and it. I ran it and it just seemed not to work. And maybe it's just the wrong players, and I hope it's not because modern players don't like tricks and traps and just want to video game things. I don't know. What do you think? I'm looking forward to it. I backed it. All right. Interesting comments there from Carl Rodriguez. And a question for me asking for an opinion. My goodness. What do I think about Necropolis and this whole idea of traps and tricks within the dungeon? Um, It's a tricky one, actually, if you'll pardon the pun. I think that I was quite reassured in what Mark Greenberg had to say 
in terms of how he had reapproached this. So he really wasn't very keen on the old Gygaxian hag gotcha traps where there's really no clue to what's coming and it's just kind of zap, you get got. That stuff really can suck from the point of view of the player and I think that's a really good move from him to move away from that approach. But traps definitely are a bit of a stylistic thing uh, that some people do like and a lot of people don't seem to like as much personally i quite enjoy those kinds of mental challenges especially if the clues are there for you to pick up and there's plenty of stuff in the lore in the background to kind of guide you on how to overcome things i'm thinking of the approach of indiana jones in the temple of doom and such where the traps exist but you know information he's gathered beforehand allows him to be aware of them spot them and learn how to neutralize them i think that can be a lot of fun if your players are into it I think, though, if players aren't into that, then this is going to annoy them. I think, as with all things, the key here is to sit down and have a conversation with your players about what they want. I think this is going to appeal to pretty old school people. I think it's going to appeal to people perhaps in our age bracket who remember the Gygaxian stuff and that's fond memory along the way. I don't know about the modern 5th edition world and it'll be interesting to see how it sells, I guess. But anyway, thanks so much for the call in. I hope I kind of answered the question. Let's see what Kevin's got to say. Hey, Shay, it's Kevin calling in from the Red Caps podcast. Just finished listening to your episode about the underdog, and I was nodding the whole way through the way you described that world and why you want to play as a lower magic, lower powered uh, character and, and work your way up. Pretty much spawn on how I prefer to play the game as well. Um, I think you probably go more in depth into the world than I do, and that's more due to my own uh, laziness probably than my will. I, I would really like to do that. I just find myself not having the time to to get it as consistent as probably you would like. But if you end up running that world and you think you need other players, uh, I would jump on board in that in a heartbeat. Anyhow, really enjoyed the episode. Thought it was fantastic. I will continue listening and keep up the great work. Hey Shay, it's Kevin calling in from the Red Caps podcast. Just finished listening to the episode on the bonus episode on the underdog and worlds in general. Wanted to say two quick items. One, it should be completely normal that a GM would want to have a fully fledged out world, uh, you know, a complete world, because in many ways the world is the GM's character. So having a fully completed out character that makes complete sense, is consistent, has all the items in it that they would want, whether or not it ever actually gets used. Completely makes sense. Um, Another item I want to mention was uh, bouncing off an idea that John from Tales of the Manicore had at the end of the episode about power creep in D&D and trading in magic swords um, over time. And I think more people need to remember that their characters can grow old, they can retire, they can go and open a keep and become a political game with those characters and roll up new ones that go into the dungeons. Anyhow, just an idea. Take care. Thanks for the podcast fine comments there from kevin thanks very much calling in man it's great to hear from you again and i did appreciate your comments i think it's interesting what you said at the end there about power creep in response to to john from tell the manticore and i guess the thing i would point out is yep you can do that you can shift your game from being you know the under the dungeon adventuring game and you can make it into a completely different kind of game a political game or you can retire those characters and then carry on going through that loop of starting at level one and moving around I certainly did that for a lot of years. But I have to say, some of us actually don't want the powerful stuff. We're not interested in power. 
Um, in fact, we're interested in exploring the world. We're interested in playing on role-playing our characters. We're interested in, in interactions between our characters and NPCs in the world. And we're not actually worried about collecting magic items. And so I guess it comes down once again to what is it you're looking for from your game and having that conversation with your players. Rescue! Hey, Shay. I do have a conundrum. I really, I honestly do like the zero to hero type of game. And I think a game that's very conducive to it is Warhammer Fantasy, especially when you roll randomly, because more than likely you're going to get some sort of peasant or villager or city street rat beggar type who's human. And you try to make your way in the, in a very harsh and deadly grim dark world of the old empire. But not all players like that. In fact, one player I know doesn't is not his favorite game, though he'll play with us. And they're always like, well, this game is not heroic enough. So what do you do about those players? I mean, the other players totally disagree because there are definitely heroic moments. What do you do about that player who wants to be the big dog and that they want to be super-powered and a superhero? Do you... I mean... You don't exclude them. I don't think you're that type of person that would exclude them. But how do you convince them or get them get their head wrapped around the zero to hero underdog concept when I guess the reason they do play is so they can be larger than life, right? It's a very interesting conundrum. And how do you get those disparate types of players together? And again, while the majority seem to like that, I'm just going to play and someone who's not a noble, doesn't have a lot of money, you know, has this like little stick for their first weapon. And then hopefully I can be something great in the world. Others want to be great already. This is a really great question, Carl. I'm really glad you asked it, actually. And it's also, you're right, a difficult one. It kind of depends how we're going to look at this. When I was playing games around my gaming table on a Friday night with my regular friends, and I was sitting there wanting to play a much more lower-powered game, alongside guys who really do power game, if I use the term from Robin Laws' definition. They they love their collection of magic items and they love getting them ratcheting up the next power, you know, as they go up levels and I'm going to have this ability and that feat and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking right back to the third edition days. When I played at that table, I as GM had to sacrifice what I wanted in the game so that I could play with those guys. And I guess I was kind of happy to do that, but I was rarely satisfied. Now, flipping that on its head, if I'm expressing to my players at the table the kind of game that I really like to run and play, then we can have an adult conversation about that. And it could be that those guys are going to turn around to me and say, no, that's not what we want at all. And then I have to make a decision, don't I? I have to make a decision about whether I'm going to run that game anyway and alienate those players. Not something I would choose whether I'm going to adjust myself. But of course, there is a different way of looking at this. And I don't think it's about excluding people. I think it's about being honest with people. I think that sometimes the things that are on offer just aren't for you. I think that sometimes the things that are being kind of put in front of our noses aren't the things that we want. And so we choose not to take part in those things 
And I think that's okay. I think the difficulty is when you're being sold a bill of goods for one thing and actually what you get is very different. I think it's kind of crueler actually to offer a player a game without specifying you know, what you're looking for, what you're trying to evoke, what experience you've got on offer and then kind of con them into playing and then feel disappointed down the line. My experience is they're going to leave anyway. So why not be honest about that up front? Look at it another way. When I used to work for Games Workshop, one of the cardinal rules, we had the kind of 10 commandments of customer service. And one of the cardinal rules was that you didn't sell someone something that they didn't need. Now, you could argue that nobody needs toy soldiers and game war games rules, right? So fair enough. But putting that aside, quite a lot of time you'd have parents come in with a long list of stuff that their kid wanted, say for Christmas or their birthday. And you would they go through this list. What I used to do is I used to pile this stuff up and you know, kind of see what there was. I could visually see what there was and they could see what there was piling up. And then I would ask some questions and I'd ask some clarifying questions about who they were buying for. Was this a person who was an experienced gamer or was this somebody who was a beginner? How old is this beginner? And so on. And quite a lot of the time, what I would do is end up making a recommendation for some completely different products. Sometimes, quite shockingly, I suppose, to some people, those products would add up to less money in terms of value as well because I knew the product range better than the customer did, especially if they were an outsider to the hobby buying for someone who wanted to get into the hobby. And so I could offer them the appropriate stuff for the person who's actually going to start this hobby. And when it comes to our hobby, I think we have to be honest enough to say that what we are doing, what we are offering, might not be suitable for everybody out there. And that's okay. It isn't excluding someone to say, I don't think you're going to like this. It isn't a bad thing to have honesty and integrity to say, you know what? I don't think what you're wanting from your game is what I'm going to offer. I personally would always allow the person to make the choice for themselves. I'm not going to say, no, you can't come play with us, but I am going to be pretty clear about what's on offer. And if they start to complain during the game later on, I am going to be clear and say, well, you know, I told you so, right? I told you that this is what we were trying to do. So yes, I do think it can be a conundrum, but I think it's a less of a conundrum if we're actually talking to each other openly, expressing what our desires are and kind of taking things from there. Because I'll be honest with you, Carl, I have sacrificed what I wanted in my gaming for decades because I didn't have the courage to say to my friends in front of me, you know what, I don't really enjoy playing Dungeons and Dragons or I don't really enjoy playing this kind of super heroic game. While it can be a laugh, it just doesn't engage me in the same way as something where we ratchet it all down and we come into a sense of grounded realism. Now, I know that's not for everybody, and that's fine. But I think it's time, at least for me, to start being honest. So I don't know if that helps you, Carl. I don't know if that makes sense to you. But I feel like being honest with our players, talking to them, that is actually going to give us the best chance of matching all of what we want at the gaming table and achieve something greater than we might otherwise have achieved. Hey, Che, Paul here. Uh, thanks very much for your extremely 
thoughtful response to my last call-in on, on, on worlds and, and how we come to know them. I wasn't sure if I was going to call in again, because uh, it seemed like a pretty good exchange, but there was something that kept nagging at me, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. It felt like somehow we were talking at cross-purposes. There was just something that wasn't quite quite right. And I couldn't figure out, you know, was it the epistemology? Was it the sort of the way we come to know the worlds uh, through play, uh, through the table, uh, through reading about it in books? Was it uh, ontology, sort of the belief about the realism of those worlds? And I think the argument I was making in the last call is we're actually closer than that. Uh, so, so. Uh, when I was mowing the lawn tonight, I was listening to Ken and Robin episode uh, 455. And in the first segment there, they're talking about introducing cities to players. And both uh, Ken Hyde and Robin Laws have, have a, a, a bias towards the real world. So rather than secondary worlds, they use the primary world as the place to start from, particularly, you know, Ken beats this drum all the time. But, but Robin Laws made a point in that episode that if from the purposes of play, there isn't actually that much difference between introducing an imaginary city and a real city. So, you know, if you take, you know, Minas Tirith versus Philadelphia, you know, at the table, what's the real difference there? And, or, or something that's being made up on the fly. And I was trying to put my, my finger on it. So, I mean, Philadelphia is, you know, completely believable. It's obviously not an act of sub-creation in the way that you're talking about in this book by Mark J.P. Wolf, uh, which I looked up and tried to add to my list, but it turns out it, it ranges from 60 to 200 bucks, so that's probably going to sit on my wish list for a while. But but there's there, there's something... I think important there that I'm really curious to get to the core of. So, so you say a world that's utterly believable, that can sustain stories, but exists outside the story. I mean, that's Philadelphia, man. It's right down the street from me. You know, Philadelphia does not exist to support any particular story or any particular set of characters, but it's going to emerge at the table in a very particular way. And, you know, if you, you know, invent a name for a particular craft beer bar on the fly, that that doesn't change anything fundamental about Philadelphia, and it doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, if I ran Tolis, I wouldn't care about the exact details necessarily. You know, it's the idea of Tolis. It's the way it facilitates something that comes out at the table. So it's this difference between... Um, you know, so so how, how it unfolds through what we do together at the table. It isn't necessarily existing as the backdrop to a story, but the way the details come out do support the story. So sometime over the summer, cannot remember when, uh, time is weird, but you talked about a game your wife ran and you were really enjoying it until it came through that she was, and I, I'm, you know, 
paraphrasing wildly here, basically just making it up. And that broke the illusion for you. It, 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 it let you see behind the scrim. And in some essential way, that spoiled it. And I think that's the difference. So I think where we differ is not epistemology, is not ontology. Perhaps it's teleology. You know, it's is the act of thinking about this world done in the right way to the right end if it's done directly to facilitate play instead of aiming at just creating the world is that the essential difference so at the end of your, your response you you ask you know maybe or you say maybe you're totally wrong i don't think this is something that it's possible to be wrong about i mean these are sort of really abstruse philo uh, philosophical approaches but i think it's really interesting to talk about so uh so i guess i'll leave it there and i'll be very interested to hear what you have to say about that thanks a lot Shay. keep up the podcast and absolutely fascinating and interesting analysis there from you, Paul. And thank you so much as well. And yeah, there's a question inherent in there, isn't there? Of you know, are you getting closer to what I'm talking about? And I think you are. I think teleology sums it up quite well. So for those who aren't philosophers, teleology essentially is about the purpose of things. Telos from the Greek, kind of what is the end what is the goal i guess is where we are coming from in this discussion now for me the goal is to provide the player with an experience of entering a fantastic world and to experience a deeper other world immersion into that world in a similar way to how i have come to believe in the primary world around me we are offering the players the opportunity to, over time, sink into and immerse themselves within the other world. Alongside that is the desire to inhabit our character's perception. So to that end, if I am creating the city, then it would be jarring to that goal if partway through the adventure, I turn to you and say, oh, okay, so you're going to go to the bar down the street what do you think the bar's called? My response surely would be, what do you mean what I think the bar's called? Don't you know? I don't know if that clarifies it, but essentially that's what's jarring for me as a player. When a GM says to me, yeah, you come from this village, and they then ask me, so, you know, who's the blacksmith in the village? I personally feel that that immediately jars with the goal that I have. I am being informed, in fact. I am being shown, it's been put in front of my nose, that this thing isn't actually real. And it's up to me now to contribute to the creation of that thing. And that's not what I came to the table for. I came to the table to enter a fantasy other world and to be able to believe in it. Now, that goal is perhaps an unusual one but it's the goal that I have when I play and it's really what I want so it matters hugely how the GM presents things to me to go back to my wife's example it really didn't matter to me as a player if she was making stuff up as long as I didn't know that and let's be honest essentially we're all making stuff up all the time all this is made up but the conceit that I'm looking for is to offer the player the opportunity to, over time, 
begin to believe in this game world, in this fantasy place, in a way that is almost, perhaps not quite, but almost as good as their belief in the world around them. Thanks so much for your call in. I really appreciated it. And like you, I don't think we're talking at cross purposes. I think that we just have perhaps different goals in our gaming. And that's fine. And so that's it from this bonus roleplay rescue call in episode another 1d6 call-ins massive thank you to the callers to carl from the geomologist to kevin from the red caps podcast and of course to paul also known as heptilemma really appreciated those calls insightful and thought-provoking stuff that i really enjoyed so thank you and that's it i'm gonna wrap it up there i hope that there has been something useful or interesting for you and I hope that you'll continue to listen to the show. Don't forget, if you've got questions or comments, you can drop me a message at anchor.fm slash rpgrescue. Just click on the message button. Or you could record, as Paul Heptalema did, on your personal device and email me the sound file to hello at rpgrescue.com. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again on the flip side. Game on. Thank you.